That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, your favorite board game podcast that you're listening to right at this instance. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my father's very favorite podcaster, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic. I'm very glad to hear I'm, that. I'm his favorite because it's the only podcast he's ever listened to, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, you're his favorite because he had said something about how he wished he could hear more of you and less of the other voice generally in his life. That's, a lot of, my, that's something much like my father. He, he'd like to hear a lot less of me sometimes as well, too. So at any rate, this is a podcast about board games. I have a couple of follow-ups from last week, actually, that are of relevance. First of all, something that we caught in time to insert into the episode notes from last week, but not in the actual episode. We neglected to mention that our copy of Land, Air, and Sea, excellent two-player game, is a review copy. Just wanted to flag that real quick in terms of a disclosure. And there's been a lot of really good follow-up on the Guild about our discussion about competition and competitiveness. And one of the things that I really like was people started talking about appropriate attitudes with respect to new players. And obviously that's not something we touched on. I am very sympathetic to a lot of the concerns that a lot of people raised. And indeed, when teaching new players, I very often in the middle of game, I try not to quarterback. And I think I'm pretty good about that. But I often say to new players, well, you know, you might want to reconsider this. You might want to reconsider that other thing, especially when it pertains to what I might do in terms of play, right? It's like, well, if you go there, I might try to take it from you or something along those lines. And yeah, you bully them. I got you, yeah. No, 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 no. And you do this very well as well. <laughs> you are very, very good at not telling people how to play or what to play the game. But number one, if someone seems confused, you know when to step in and offer them constructive advice without overwhelming them. And number two, if someone does something that abuts your interests, you're usually very clear at saying, look, do whatever you like. But if you do that, I might have to come smack you. Agreed. And that is very helpful and salutary for our new players. I agree. I also want to talk about the fact that Essen is finally finished up this weekend. Lots of new games coming down the pipe, so that's very exciting. Nothing that's totally jumping out, but looking forward to new stuff. I'm always amazed when listeners reach out and ask us if we're going to Essen. Given that if they've listened to the podcast, they might know that, generally speaking, traveling to, say, Toronto is a little bit past what we're normally willing to do. And so going all the way to Germany where we don't speak the language, and where the expense and bother would be huge. I mean, I'd love to be able to go to Essen. If Essen were right next door, I would definitely cross the street to go to Essen. That is absolutely the case. It's painful how close I was one year to going to Essen. I was, like, in Europe for, like, six months, and, like, two weeks after I came back home, Essen was happening. It was, like, very frustrating. It's like, are you kidding me? The one thing that I probably would go to, and I'm back in Canada. Well, the other thing about Essen, and this is the last word on travel, is that any time I've had an opportunity to go anywhere in Europe sometime in October, in and around the, the process of, of Essen, it's very much like the joke that we Canadians tell about people from outside of our country. They say, oh, I'm going to be swinging through Montreal. Maybe I'll go to Vancouver for lunch. 
And then we laugh and say, oh, you don't know anything about the country, uh, uh, about our country. But I have the same ignorance with respect to Europe. I'm like, how far away is that from Essen? Oh, eight hours by train. Okay, no thanks. So, no, we didn't go to Essen, but we are looking forward to a number of Essen releases. And uh, as we get our grubby little hands on them, we will be sure to let you know. All right. In case you didn't already know, this is a podcast about board games. First thing we're going to do is talk about games we played this week, news, and why it doesn't matter, our feature game of the week, which is Rook, Dawn of Kiev. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play Letter Jam. Letter Jam is the new multiplayer co-op word game by CGE, and so it's drawing a number of comparisons to Codenames. It has nothing to do with Codenames. They are incredibly different. Letter Jam is a relatively simple game, but it is a game that is very, very, very difficult to explain conceptually to people. And I know this for a fact because no fewer than three people before I played Letter Jam tried to give me the sort of elevator pitch about how it worked, and I could not understand at all what they were telling me. It was one of <laughs> three different pitches, all of which were completely different, none of which were helpful. All that I got was this is a game involving letters and words, and I they, they would talk about how it works. I will I will give my attempt at this as well, and I will also note that again, despite the fact that it's a relatively simple co-op game. And I've tried to explain the rules several different ways. Usually someone's completely lost by the end of it. The long and the short of it is, what you are doing is giving people clues so that they can figure out what hidden letters in front of them. A bit like Coyote or a lot of other games, everybody has a letter in front of them at all times, and everyone can see everyone else's letter except their own. And the way you give clues is by forming anagrams of visible letters. So I'm sitting there at at a table, and I see five face-up letters, and I've got a hidden letter in front of myself. And I try to think of a clue, uh, which consists of a word, using as many of those visible letters as possible. And that might help people figure out what's going on. I really like the core conceit. I'm not a huge fan of anagrams or puzzles like that. And and despite the fact that Letter Jam is in many ways anagram the game, I thoroughly enjoy that part. And trying to figure out what the hidden letter is when other people give me clues, that's one of my favorite bits. There are a couple of problems, however, and this is why Letter Jam I don't think quite reaches the top tier of group activities like this. One of them is, and this is actually a non-trivial problem. This was actually relayed to me by the gentleman from whom I purchased the game. You find out how well your friends can spell. I was about to say, this seems like a game not for me. Much like Scrabble, you need to know how to spell. Yes. Other word games we like, like code names, like Just One. Just One is great because you don't have to care about the spelling. Misspellings are permitted, and so it gets revealed, and everyone's going to misspell something or other, so it's all okay. There's an atmosphere of permissiveness. But when someone in Letter Jam tries to clue you with W-I-O-R-E, and then you start frowning like a monkey doing a math puzzle and trying to figure out what they're talking about, and then they look at their phone and say, oh, oh, wait, no, that's not how you spell it. I got to do something else. Literally happened to us. Uh, it's a bit of a problem. That's the first issue. The second issue is that the rules concerning the Ed game are kind of unsatisfying and fuzzy. I respect the fact that in co-op games it can be difficult to establish victory conditions, and uh, just one's recourse, for example, is just to have the, the, the rulebook neg you by saying, good job, dum-dum, maybe you can grow up and, and find a good result later. But Letter Jam's even worse than that. Letter Jam basically says, eh, winning's really hard, see how well you do. Meh. <laughs> That's more or less. Out the door. Which is fine. And the, the final problem is, uh, honestly, that in terms of giving clues, only one person gives a clue every round. And you're supposed to decide who which clue to give. And in order to prevent people from being able to talk about their clue in a way that makes their clue obvious, and or to talk about their clue in a way that gives other people incidental information about what their letter might be they have to introduce arbitrary communication restrictions. 
So you end up with people sitting there saying, I have a good clue about which I feel confident staring daggers at the person to whom they're actually trying to clue, and things like that. It's unavoidable. I hate games with artificial communication restrictions like that. And they do their best to try to explain how it works and the things you're allowed to say and the things you're not allowed to say. It falls apart. It falls apart real hard, real quick. And ultimately, the the overall dynamics of the game, I'm not a huge fan of. The cluing is great, the fundamental conceit is great, but how it all hangs together, not so hot of a game, I don't think. So I'm very, very glad to have tried it, and I'm probably going to try it another couple times, because again, the core loop is good when the letter distributions are okay. That's another exogenous problem. Sometimes there are too many vowels, sometimes there are not enough vowels, and that can cause things to stall a little bit. But So Letter Jam was fun. I'm going to play it some more, but I really don't think that given the strong number of even just pure co-op board games, just one came out a few months ago, and it's awesome. And Letter Jam is more thinky and more clever in some ways, but overall it doesn't hang together. So that was that's my impression of Letter Jam. Well, let's go right into Codenames Duet, because we were just talking about word games and codenames. I've already talked about Codenames Duet before. Got it, because I wanted to find out how they could bring this really interesting like seven to eight player game down to only a two player game. And I thought they did a fantastic job. Still enjoy playing it. The person I played with loved it. It's a great little, you know, take on code names and how to make it down to two player. And if you're, if you enjoy code names, give it a try. So clever. It is like it literally bought it just to see how they did it. It was, it was, I guess they just, you know, you have nine tries, you know, to get the 15 words and the way they have, you know, three different assassins, two are the same on the two cards, double-sided card. Anyway, pick it up, try it out, not pick it up, find someone who's got a copy, give it a try first. (laughs) We do not encourage the purchase of anything. I really, yeah, (laughs) it's so true. With repeated plays, is there less of the sort of staring at the combinatorics of clues and trying to game out, well, I know, I already know this many overlapping assassins, so I know this thing can't be... Because that was the only part that I didn't like, the the part where you really start feeling like you have to puzzle out the combinatorics of the overlapping clues. I think that only happens when you're playing with, you know, someone who plays a lot of games. Like, when you're in a party atmosphere or with someone that doesn't play a lot, they don't see that part of the game whatsoever. They're you're blaming just... the victim here is what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Not the victim, just you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it really didn't come up that much. It was just, you know, trying to... Because it was the first time we played, it was mostly just coaching them through it, and, and I doubt they would even eventually game it out. Fair enough. It's been a long time coming, but I finally got to play Spirit Island again. There had been a long Spirit Island drought, in part driven by the Philistine sitting in front of me. But Spirit Island is the uh, cooperative settler destruction game. Well, by not Eric only that, Weiss. it's our usual thing, right? There's a there's a expansion coming out, and because it's you know floating in the cloud, the game gets put on the shelf <laughs> until the expansion gets here, right? Well, like many games that I thoroughly adore and have played many many times. But I haven't played for a while. There was the traditional conflict, internal conflict about what to play. Either play a spirit that you don't play very often or play your favorite spirit. And my favorite spirit is Ocean's Hungry Grasp. I love drowning things. I absolutely adore it. Please don't use that against me in a future deposition. I was going to say fantastic soundbite. Right. And so I played... Ocean's Hungry Grasp, and it was in many ways the perfect spirit setup for Ocean's Hungry Grasp. For anyone who's familiar with the setup of the game, it was a three-player game. I was Ocean's Hungry Grasp, River Surges in Sunlight, and Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares. And so what you have are two spirits that are very, very good at pushing things, and a spirit that turns the ocean into a death trap. So it was basically driving everyone, uh, driving all the English settlers into the sea as though they were lemmings, 
And then what happened was, it was just one of those things where I really felt like like Spirit Island is one of those games that delivers on the promise that I hear a lot of other publishers like Portal and a lot of other people talking about things like Blood on the Clock Tower, games that tell stories. Spirit Island tells stories. Part of this is because I've actually read the lore and I've heard Eric both in both to me personally and in interviews talk about the incredible depth of narrative that hides behind every element of the game because he has thought through Everything. And not only that, the, the how the spells are named and the how, powers, they, how yes. they link together and how they incorporate into the game. Exactly. It, all just, it feeds all into this narrative. Absolutely. And by the end of the game, all of us were got to do things that felt super impressive. We talked about this in the context of the review, how I feel that one of the virtues of Spirit Island is, especially by the end of the game, you get to feel incredibly powerful. And I was deploying sea monsters in such a way that I was deploying four sea monsters around, thanks to the help of River Surge and Sunlight. Again, fantastic use of support abilities. Being able to make support powers feel really cool is another thing that Spirit Island does really well. And I was just dropping sea monsters like crazy all over the coasts of everywhere. And it was generating so much damage and fear that it quickly got it caused the game to spiral out of control and win in our favor. And we were just... You know, telling stories about how the bringer of dreams and nightmares was talking about how he came from the realm of pure metal, namely Cleveland, and how, you know, we were driving people insane and screaming into the sea. And it was just lots and lots of great moments. And so Spirit Island was an absolutely wonderful experience. I am always happy to play it. I've had good luck with getting both it and Sidero Confluence at the table in the past couple of weeks. Two brilliant, brilliant games that came out in the, the, the recent past. Spirit Island can't say enough good things about it all right so these are fantastic segues talking about stories let's talk about a storybook crusoe crew mark very seldom do we get games that live up to the hype not only live up to the hype but exceed it these are fantastic books if you are, know any children or have any children or even just or read at a child level or, or, or read at a child level like even even a once through for the the group we had was fantastic the art it's like the almost every page, no, well, every page is fantastic art. It's not as though it's like tons of text. Every unique page, even even in every every of the four books, even if it's a panel that is roughly the same for everybody, it's just a slightly different perspective. Every picture is drawn differently for every character. So just in case you didn't know, Crusoe Crew is a four-book game where these four kids are out... Uh, trying to find treasure and it's a pick your own adventure and everyone's book is from only their character's perspective and they all have different abilities like one of them can talk to animals one of them super agility one's really good with puzzles and depending on you know what their specialty is they get to see different things than the other ones do so they're turning to different pages they're filling out you know figuring out different puzzles and it was a great time much like all of these really cool games, the the final tally or you know the points are awarded at the end is very fiddly and odd, but it's not even worth figuring out. You just play for fun, and it was a great experience. And that's Crusoe Crew. I had heard reports. I was very curious to hear what you had to say about it because I haven't tried it, but the conceit, like you, I find very appealing. I had heard that the conceit of different people having different perspectives and access to different paragraphs and different different routes is underused. Now, you say that the art is slightly different from every every perspective, but does that actually manifest in gameplay? Is it the case that someone's like, well, I see this thing, and everyone's like, wait, we don't see that thing. Tell us more. Oh, yeah, 100%. Oh, great. Several times it happened. That's 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 good to hear. I mean, so but you you seem to think that the replayability isn't isn't really there. No, well, because it's more like a you know it's a an, uh, choose your own adventure. 
right? Which is, you can replay it quite a few times, but this is an illustrated choose your own adventure and the books aren't really that thick. I see. So I think there's two main islands and I think once you've, you know, explored these two main islands and figured it out, I think that would be pretty well it. I see. How much play time do you think? Three hours. Okay. Played a game called Yugo. This is just U-G-O exclamation point. So it's more like Yugo! And I, w- I would certainly recommend that if anyone suggests that you play this game, you go and leave. And see that that, that, that was good. That was good. That was clever. That was my attempt at Walker style humor. That wow. was my homage to you. That was like a Walker pastiche. Really? How'd I do? Really? Ow, that hurt. Mark. Not not that well. Hurt deep. Oh, that hurt deep. Oh, okay, um, I'm very sorry. It's that bad? Wow, I didn't realize it was <laughs> so terrible. I was just look. It's it's <laughs> it's like playing a dexterity game with my off hand, right? I'm I, I'm trying to do something that I'm not accustomed oh, to. Oh, there you go. So, <laughs> as I would say, tell us more about this. Yugo! Yugo is a trick-taking game that seeks to, like many trick-taking games, fiddle a little bit with the scoring systems. And I will give, give credit with this. Most of the time when trick-taking games fiddle with scoring systems, they end up with something incredibly convoluted and weird. Uh, but this is very straightforward. Uh, there are no trumps in Yugo. Which kind of takes a little bit of the teeth out of trick-taking. I, I, I like the Trump system uh, most of the time, and I like when trick-taking games play a little bit with that. Like with Bargain Hunter, for example, which is probably net-net my favorite trick-taking game, that and Vashtikt. But Yugo is... it. You're supposed to play four hands, because every trick-taking game under the sun ha- suffers from variance problems, and you need to play a number of times to hopefully let those even out. The thing that I didn't like about Yugo is it is very easy to saddle people with cards that will cause them to lose points. Very much like Diamonds. Diamonds was another trick-taking game that people raved about in terms of playing with the formula, and again, I felt in Diamonds it was a little bit too easy to saddle people with unfortunate results. And so sloughing off of cards, issues of managing a long suit or a short suit or things like that didn't lack a lot of the subtlety because it was just, especially at the, the last couple tricks of the game, to just feed somebody something that would cost them 20, 30 points was just a little too easy. And uh, that part I really didn't enjoy. So in terms of quick, interesting, Euro-derivative trick-taking games, I think you can do a lot better. Probably Bargain Hunter would be my recommendation. Uh, Jiraku is also very, very interesting. Jiraku is the trick-taking game where there's actually a board presence, so there's area majority going on as well. That I thought was also a clever variation, but Yugo didn't really do much for me, so I would not recommend it. All right. Got to play Carcassonne. Came out 19 years ago. Came out in 2000. Carcassonne was my gateway game. It was my first uh, Euro game. Well, there you go. And it it plays like a game that's 19 years old (laughs) and does not play very well two-player. Oh, I couldn't disagree more. About about the two player, but I think it's best two player. Uh, I, I don't know. I played it a lot on the app with with more, and it just seemed as though there was more chance, you know, to get in on you know different sure. But and then stuff the downtime is killer. Uh, I suppose obviously I suppose, an app that would app go fast, away a little yeah, bit. I suppose but. In, with real people. But anyway, I, I have the big. I picked up a while ago. Picked up the big box version, which had like eight of the mini expansions, and we're slowly adding more and more in. So I'm looking forward to trying more of those. Because they they're very clever little expansions, and they and they do very little easy to you know incorporate into the game. So looking forward to that. Carcassonne is just a you know typical you know tile tile laying game. Put out your meeples, trying to manage how many you have at once. Because if you have them all out and a good scoring opportunity comes out, you don't have any more to put up. But well, it's weird you say that. It's kind of typical now, largely because Carcassonne was tremendously influential and innovative at the time of its release, and so true. True, yeah, not so much, not so awe-inspiring now, but in its time, it was a fantastic game, and it's—I think it's got like this—a new, super big 
edition out. I think Z-Man has it now. And I think there's so many different varieties of the big box with a different subset oh, of I did. expansions. I look, when I was looking up on uh, on BGG, it said, uh, here's the list of the 15 publishers of Carcassonne. <laughs> and that's, that's not being, that's not. Right. That's it, actually, there was 15. But anyway, I think they, they have the newest edition and they're putting out all the the new expansions. Well, Carcassonne can be a lifestyle. And there's also, you know, there's all the, you know, little sub games like, you know, South Pacific and Gold Rush and Star Wars and all of these Carcassonne type games that, you know, did a little spin on, you know, that formula. And they're all, I've played quite a few of them. They're all, you know, fairly interesting. Yeah. Some of the historical variants, I played the one that was about nominally settling the 13 colonies. And that one was probably my favorite of the variants. The the sort of, I mean, even Reiner Knizia did his own standalone Carcassonne version. And I feel that if you're going to play the vanilla Carcassonne, you know, you can easily get to expansion bloat, but you probably want at least one expansion in because as you say, number one, they're interesting. And number two, I found that they prevent the tile mix from being very, very restrictive. If you just play base Carcassonne, sometimes you can just run out of, say, a particular shape. And so you might start a city not knowing that it's just impossible to finish given the tile mix. That's one of the reasons, this is going to be a very strange comparison, but trust me, it's one of the reasons why I'm often dubious of a lot of 18xx games, because to play a lot of these 18xx games, you have to know the tile mix and say, oh, well, you know, that railroad's not going to be too good because I know that the tile that it needs to connect Spokane to Wichita, I don't know where those two cities are, <laughs> isn't available anymore. And similarly, I've played Carcassonne with these real Carcassonne mavens. They look at the board and they say, well, we're not playing with any expansions. Yeah, that city's never going to finish. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Got to play Undaunted Normandy again. Walker and I tried this a few weeks ago and were very impressed. And I got to play an asymmetric scenario. The first scenario we played was a little symmetrical in terms of the squad composition, in terms of the victory conditions. This scenario was extremely asymmetric. And one of the reasons why I was glad to try this scenario in particular was because many World War II games, the ones I hate and the ones that I like, sometimes degenerate into a slog, where it's just you have a defender who's in a defensive position and is deploying firepower against an attacker that has to take ground and take risks. And the question is, under those circumstances, is the game still compelling in the context of what we would call a meat grinder? And Combat Commander Europe, I think, at its at its meat grindery worst, is still pretty engaging for a variety of exogenous reasons. But on Daunted Normandy, even in the context of a meat grinder, you care a great deal about your deck composition and your hand management, which nonetheless causes it to be engaging, despite the fact that even as the defender, you might not be moving pieces very, very far. It was great. I am looking forward to trying more on Daunted Normandy. The interaction between the card play and the board play remained as compelling as it did when we first tried it. The asymmetry really uh, only heightened that. Still haven't gotten to the point where we're playing with the more esoteric stuff, like snipers or mortars or guides or things like that. Those get start getting introduced into in later scenarios. But just the way that card flow works is so refreshing and compelling, and the way that the initiative system works is so good that I really do enjoy Undaunted Normandy. We're looking forward to the next set, which is Undaunted North Africa, which is specifically going to be about British and Italian units. It has been situated historically so that it will not redo the same factions that were involved in the Normandy set. The designer reached out to me and, and clarified that when I complained that Undaunted Normandy, like every other World War II game in existence, starts with the Germans and the Americans, and I glumly predicted that it was going to stay that way for the next five iterations of the system. So, looking forward to that degree of variety, and I also want to try all the scenarios in Undaunted Normandy, if at all possible. Very, very quick game, very compelling. 
Very, very enjoyable. Looking forward to more Undaunted Normandy. So Mark and I got to play Cloud Spire. This is by the same people who did Too Many Bones, and this has the same ridiculous production value as Too Many Bones, all the neoprene mat boards and and plastic cards, and you can play the whole thing out in the rain or in your bathtub, and it'll be just fine. I would like to point out that also it still has the same ridiculous lack of usability concerns by virtue of its production. Like, you're supposed to shuffle neoprene mat tiles. Yeah, well, I wanted to play in the bathtub, but Mark wouldn't let me. Yeah, uh... There are certain important boundaries in our relationship, Walker, and I would like to keep that one of them. All right. So Leo, Showers, yes. Baths, no. Gotcha. The one thing I do have down here for Cloud Support, is it worth the investment? And not, I don't mean monetary investment. I mean the rules load, the the amount of moving around. So what it is is a tower-type defense game, and you're getting these resources. And it's For the life of me, I don't understand why they did it this way. There's two types of resources. You know, one you're going to play during this one phase where you're going to upgrade your towers and, and your and your fortress, and then you get another set of resources which you're going to build troops. I think it would just been way more interesting and, and playability would have been increased if it was just one set. Anyway, I digress. Moving on, you have these mindless troops that have to move towards the enemy base. They're building towers. You're building towers because they're sending troops towards you. They sort of, you know, take pots, shots at each other as they pass each other along these paths. And then they attack the base. And at the end of X number of turns, it's, you know, how many points your fortress has left. Or, you know, maybe you've destroyed the enemy fortress or whatever. But like I said, it's a lot of rules load. It's a lot of moving around. It's a lot of chips. It's a lot of pieces. And is it really, is it worth the fun that we got out of the game? And, it's, and we'll yet to see it. I want to play it some more, and maybe it will be. We spent a lot of time looking down at our sheets of special abilities, just trying to figure out how the faction worked at a base level. And that is okay in many contexts. I prefer it in a co-op context. We talked about this immediately thereafter. In Too Many Bones, your characters are also radically asymmetric. But then it's a cooperative game where you get to do something cool, and all your friends are like, Yay! In Cloudspire, your unique unit gets to do something cool, and your opponent's like, wait, what? And then their plan is ruined for the turn, possibly. The alternative to this, of course, is for everybody to perfectly internalize the special abilities of everybody before the game starts. But then you're spending a fair bit of time just reading about how all these units work before the game starts. The other chief concern I have is you spend a lot of time just manipulating mindless units. Your units, by design, and I think that this is a clever design decision don't have much discretion at all in terms of what they do once they hit the field. And that was done to speed things up and not make things bogged down. But nonetheless, you spend a lot of time just resolving and manipulating these mindless things. And so it feels a lot like a MOBA game that didn't know how to deal with minions properly. We talk about MOBA games all the time. And manipulating the, the minions, the mobs, in our preferred MOBA games, games like Rum and Bones, games like Guards of Atlantis, even Load for that matter, resolving the minions is trivial. just takes a couple seconds. But here it's a substantial part of the game. And I'm hoping that that gets better with experience. I'm hoping that then we get to start focusing on more of the interesting trade-offs. Like you, I'm interested in exploring the system. But uh, at the moment, the I think the jury's out. I'm not sure how I feel about Cloud Spire. Very much like you. Let's try Era Medieval Age. Era Medieval Age is by Walker's new best friend, Matt Leacock. They were palling around at Chuck's. I hear they were inseparable for all of five minutes. Yes. And Era Medieval Age is a strange beast. It looks uh, an awful lot like a roll and write, especially since it's being touted as a redevelopment of a game that was a roll and write before roll and writes were cool. It was the hipster of roll and writes, namely Roll Through the Ages, the Bronze Age. And it's 
Prince and Play expansion roll through the ages, the late Bronze Age. I thought that Bronze Age was pretty pointless, and late Bronze Age was kind of cool. And so I was vaguely curious about how Era Medieval Age would turn out. But I have faith in Matt Leacock because he's a very, very smart guy. And he's the kind of designer that finds ways to make things cleverer than they ought to be. Era Medieval Age is a game where you roll your dice and then you get to buy some buildings and or other things. And all of this is resolved by beautiful plastic pieces where you build your city on a grid. In many ways, it's like the game Tapestry should have been, because the most visually arresting thing in Tapestry, and what drove a substantial part of the MSRP, was all these little buildings that you place out in your in your city. And we found the city building kind of visually compelling, even though, and despite the fact that the buildings don't do anything when they hit your grid, they're just there to take up real estate. Well, in era medieval age, you're building your city, and the real estate matters, and the geography matters a great deal, very much like tapestry, but the buildings all have effects. They all do something. Many give you extra dice, many protect your dice, many double your points, or give you special abilities based on adjacency and things like that. And it's absolutely visually beautiful. The toy factor is absolutely through the roof. Just as we said that the toy factor in Tapestry was very high, it's like the toy factor of Tapestry, and that's the entire game. And add to that beautiful custom dice in many different varieties that all have their own function. That part is all great. And compared to other rule and rights, I find, and this is just after some problem, I've played it now four times. I'm, it's very, very quick. I'm looking forward to trying it more and at different player counts. There's just enough player interaction. You have to care about what other people are doing. You have to care about the kinds of engines that other people are building. You have to care about how fast they're ramping up militarily. You have to care about how fast they're exhausting building supplies. The, the building supply exhaustion is a serious, serious issue. This is not like, you know, building exhaustion in, say, A Feast for Odin, where it's like, oh, this thing ran out strangely. This is about how there's only two universities available, and so if you want one, you better race to it. Things like that. And there is only one serious downside to Era Medieval Age so far, and that is more of a conceptual one, and that is, is a light game, relatively light, it offers a variety of different strategies and, and build options, but is a relatively light game worth a $70 US MSRP? The market clearly says yes. We had the same concern about Tapestry. Like, does the market want a $100 MSRP in kind of gateway-ish gateway game? game? Uh, and the answer appears to be very much yes. And now the question is, do we want a $70 US roll and write game? Well, that being said, say that didn't come out by Stone Miner. Say someone else brought out Tapestry, would it have done as well? Probably not. Exactly. But if somebody other than Tapestry, uh, Stone Miner had brought it out, it would not have been as pretty. It's true. I'm a big fan of Era Medieval Age. I don't know if I can recommend people buy it because it's incredibly expensive. I do, however, vastly prefer it compared to other roll and writes. It's even shockingly thematic in a number of ways. Like, you can try to build a city or just sprawl everything out on the countryside. And if you sprawl everything out in the countryside, you're more vulnerable to raids from your neighbors, but you don't have to worry about disease quite as much. But if you build anything in a walled city, that can increase your points, and you're less worried about barbarian raids, but disease is a huge problem unless you, you take care of it. So little little flourishes like that. Those are really the things that I, that I expect out of someone like Matt Leacock. So it's very dubious. It's like, is this just going to be... Bronze Age, but five times as expensive? And the answer is no. It really isn't. And you really see where the money went. Yeah. And that tactile element is massive. So I saw it at Chuck's. I really wanted to play it. Luckily, I got to play its, you know, upcoming, hopefully upcoming uh, sister. It's going to be like based on the Gardens of Babylon. So it's the same sort of thing. And I think it's going to be even more beautiful because, you know, you're building this huge garden with palm trees and shrubbery and plants and 
fountains and towers and you're building high and it's got like you said with the barbarians it's got this other cool mechanism where you have to build a water supply and if you build it high enough it all flows down and feeds all your plants and it's got this cool interactive thing anyway i'm looking forward to give seeing it in its final production so that's era medieval age lastly i've been playing a whole bunch of terraforming mars the digital version still enjoying it but it's i, I think without the expansions i came out with i can see why terraforming mars came out with expansions just because it's sort of breaking down like you're sort of like looking at a card and now you can break it down you can know how many turns are left you know you know a lot of the cards are seen way more powerful than others like you say that card is just not worth it type thing because now you know how the game works more you know because you're blowing through so many games over and over again it's like that card is pointless because you know there's three turns left or you know you're never going to get your points back for that just stuff like that and you can see why these expansions were brought in to sort of you know mix things up a little bit and that's terraforming mars digital give it a try it, it's they did a great job are you trolling me walker not at all mark okay finally i get to play a game called Um. Ulm is a Euro game put up by Gunter Burkhardt a couple of years ago and was published by RNR. So it was it was brought to the table as sort of, well, here's this relatively generic Euro game, but the action selection mechanism might be clever. And the action selection mechanism, again, I, I'm not going to go too much into too much detail because I think visually uh, it's the kind of thing you have to see in order to understand. There's this grid of action tokens. You pull a random action token from the bag and you slide it into the grid, displacing something from that grid. It's, so there's always a three by three left. And then you do the three things in the row in the direction that you pushed. <sighs> but it's not the kind of thing where I can make a play, say, anticipating what my opponents are going to play next turn. And it's not the kind of thing where I can make a play capitalizing on what my opponents did deliberately last turn or not, unlike another clever action selection mechanism, like, for example, Kalamala. Kalamala and Ulm are very different games, but they both get by on, they both try to get by on the cleverness of their action selection mechanism. And in point of fact, immediately after we played Ulm, we played Kalamala, and I had a much better time playing Kalamala, because there, you deliberately go places to capitalize on opponents' actions or to expect to benefit from their later stuff. Ulm had... It wasn't as sloppy or as unfocused as a lot of other Euro games of this era, but it wasn't particularly tight or compelling. You're basically just moving this boat along, which determines what things you can buy to get points. And mostly your points are going to be from building buildings and, and getting cards. So that part was fine, but it had about two currencies too many that all worked in slightly different ways. And the action selection mechanism, as I said, didn't really do much for me, especially since the primary driver of what action you get to, uh, the tile you get to use to interact with the action selection mechanism is drawn randomly from a bag. And that just didn't, so there's not a whole lot of planning going on, and I didn't think that the the cleverness was leveraged very much. It was fine, it was workmanlike, it was serviceable, but uh, I don't think that Ulm really fired on all cylinders, so I will not be trying that again. And that was Ulm. And that is the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Anyway, talking about uh, Essence stuff, there's this Faron game coming out. It's by Henry Prim and Silas. The publisher is Catch Up Games, and I thought it was very interesting. It's an Egyptian-themed game, and you're preparing for your afterlife. You know, much as they did in the pyramids, they had you know you'd get all your chariots ready and everything ready for when you you know passed on to your afterlife, and everything would be waiting for you. So I thought it was a very cool you know, mechanic, you know, uh, theme, you know, where you're getting all your ducks in a row. So when you finally do pass, you know, you'll be ready to, you know, enjoy your, your, your later years. Minor correction. I don't think the ducks were primarily involved in Egyptian funeral rites. I could be wrong. Well, I don't, I, no, I, they were there. They just weren't in a row. I'm sorry. That was a mistake. They, oh, okay, they, they're okay. staggered. Okay. Sorry. Staggered ducks. Okay. Yes. Get all your ducks staggered. Right. Yep. 
I find the best way to stagger a duck is it with a kick to the beak. Or get him drunk. Well, it's a classic <laughs> story, right? Do you want to fight uh, one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Are you familiar with that? That I mean, to my mind, the answer is obvious. A hundred duck-sized horses. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Because a horse-sized duck could probably take your head off with its beak. I can only agree. And the mess you'd have to clean up after. Just, it's not right. <laughs> Minor update, this is a podcast number that is a multiple of five, so we will just mention that we have a Patreon. I will also mention that uh, Patreon supporters of all levels have been getting a bevy of bonus content of late, something that just came up today, was the panel that we did together with Board Game Barrage. You can find it there on our Patreon site. And uh, we are very grateful for all your support, and we are also very grateful for your time, even if you don't give us any money. That's all we'll say about that for now. It's also true. Mark, very seldom... Does a board game scare me? <laughs> I looked at a game on Kickstarter, and I would be afraid to play this game. It's Phil Eklund's High Frontier. High Frontier for All? Yeah, High Frontier for All. It was. It actually terrified me. The board is intimidating. And, and I the, think... It's not just the board. It's the cards as well, Mark. It's just an overall terrifying-looking game. Are these the hand cards that you put on face up on the table? I think so. It's Which like, was a it's, marvelous Eklundian innovation in the like context the of, of the previous editions. Fusion engine. Oh, sure. Mechanism. Sure. Hydrogen. Make your rocket fuel cards. I, 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 it looks very terrifying. I respect the fact that High Frontier is definitely some people's jam. It is manifestly not mine. I've played it a couple times, and uh, it's not something I'd care to repeat. But the the process of publishing... High Frontier in its now fourth edition has been dogged by a number of missteps by the publisher. Uh, the most recent one, which I found the most funny, was they said that, well, they would put out a mock-up of the cover art and people would complain if they thought that it looked ugly because that's what happens. If you put something, if you post something publicly, we could comment on this because we, we have a lot of experience with this. If you release something publicly, people will give feedback. Now, obviously, nobody should ever be rude, but sometimes the feedback is going to be blunt. And sometimes the feedback is going to be like, Mark, my son, no one wants to listen to you talk, for example. Uh, that was just a random me. I, I don't know why that came to mind. But the some people said, we, we don't like the artwork. So the publisher said, okay, okay, we've got a solution. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to run a contest where you submit your cover designs, and we're going to pick one. And then the response on the part of the internet was repeatedly, pay your artists, pay your artists, pay your artists. We are not going to do your, your artwork for you, especially for free and especially on spec. So... <laughs> That wow. was, now, to their credit, the publisher then backtracked and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. But they did it in a slightly sort of faux-wounded way where it's like, we were just trying to make you happy. Uh, but I will give them credit for reversing their course. So that that's that's all that I have to say about High Frontier for all for now. So I got some other Kickstarter news. Something I wish I'd wished my father was around for. It's called Square Off Neo Swap. It's a... I, what? Square off Neo Swap. Sorry, Square Off. There should be, I guess there should be. It's called, colon? Squ- it's called Square Off. Okay. And then there's Neo and Swap. It's what it is. It's these, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like a self-moving chessboard. Oh. It's quite fantastic. Apparently they've they've done one uh, in 2016. So three years ago that this, this was this was uh, possible or was already out. And I, I used to play a lot of chess and that's what I used to do. I'd you'd play on the computer, but I would have an actual board beside me moving around because it's something about the tactile and actually seeing it on a board Absolutely, was I much agree better more. for me. So can you imagine if the actual pieces just move themselves around kind of freaky and off-putting, but still 
on the other way, kind of cool because, you know, they have it all set up where you can play against somebody else and their pieces will move automatically on your side or you play against the computer and it moves and they even have like a teacher that teaches you the game. And I think it's just overall a really interesting and and that was the first one that, you know, it was all chess. This new one that they're coming out with, not only is it chess and, you know, the pieces move faster and it's all, you know, improved and better, but uh, they've got it so you can put any template on top of it and they've got all sorts of different games and, you know, open source so you can, you know, do whatever you need to do. So it looks like there it's it's something very interesting and something to look at and see right. it moving around is kind of neat to watch. So, so it's a literal mechanical Turk. Exactly. Very, very nice. New game being put out by Daverson Games. This is up on Kickstarter. It's called Valkyrie. Daverson Games is a uh, publishing outfit that specializes in single-player war games, usually campaign-style single-player war games, where you have a group of crew or a group of pilots, and you're then expected to run campaigns and various missions and sorties. Now, the complication or the detail in those missions and sorties can vary considerably, all the way from the earlier leader series where it was just a very, very simple and your planes would go and try to bomb or take out a specific target, to other versions like Thunderbolt Apache Leader, which is probably my favorite of his leader series, where you actually play a hex-based sort of tactical thing where you're moving your individual planes and you control the ordnance. And then there's his lighter stuff like Warfighter, where you run a special ops squad through and, and try to murder the enemies of uh, freedom, democracy, and uh, <clears throat> American geopolitics. So Valkyrie is Daverson game attempt to bring this into near future science fiction war settings, where you have big stompy robots coexisting specifically with contemporary ground forces. So, you know, contemporary main battle tank designs coexisting with these giant war machines called Valkyries. That part I'm very enthusiastic about, and I'm, I'm willing to, to see how it happens. There's one problem, though, and this is a very, very, very minor, very specific, but very strongly felt objection. I am what you call a Macross fan. I am a very, very big fan of Macross. And a Valkyrie means something very specific when it comes to giant robots. How dare they? How Now, I realize that there's only a certain number of words that you get to use for, like, the codename for cool giant robots. But Valkyries mean something very specific to me, and I cannot, in good conscience endorse that any game called Giant Robots Valkyries unless they happen to be transforming mecha that transform between fighter Gearwalk and Batroid modes. This is not okay. I would just like to lodge my objection. Valkyrie from DVG. Send them a letter. I'm sure they'll, they'll understand. Someone ought to write a letter. Someone ought to write a letter. Very sad news. A legend has died. Francis Tresham the epic-making designer of both Civilization and 1829 and its immediate offshoot, 1830, both of which effectively invented entire genres of game, not even just entire genres of board game, but entire genre of game, Francis Strachan has passed away. Apparently, he was a wonderful human being as well. I always wanted to meet him. That was one of the things that eventually that, that sometimes led me to, 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 to consider going to cons because I, I heard he would be there. And he continued to design games... Uh, well into the new millennium, he designed Revolution the Dutch Revolt, which was actually, and I don't recommend this, my first Francis Tresham design. It feels a lot like Civilization, and I recommend you start with Civilization rather than, than the Dutch Revolt. Not that there's anything wrong with the Dutch Revolt, it's just a very weird game, especially if you don't have any context. Personally, I was in a terrible mood when I found out about this, and I was in a bad mood for the rest of the day, because I really do think, even though he hasn't designed you know, the, the latest, greatest thing, and... He's, he's usually not mentioned in a lot of contemporary discussions of board game design and designers, but in terms of sheer influence, I think that he probably ranks higher than any other single human being in our hobby. And his passing is a tremendous and very saddening loss. So 
We give our condolences to everyone who knew him, everyone who survives him, and I will definitely be trying to play his one of his masterpieces in the near future in an attempt to honor him. And that's all of our news this week and why it really doesn't matter, but in some cases, really does. On to our feature game of the week, which is Rook, Dawn of Kiev. Mark, who designed this game? Stan Kordonsky, I'm probably butchering his name, from Peacekeeper Games. It was uh, kickstarted and came out this year. So the theme of Dawn of Kiev, the theme is uh, very specific and not something that I think most gamers are familiar with. I certainly wasn't familiar with it, and I have not encountered any other person to whom I've shown the game to be familiar with this period of history. This is about the immediate aftermath and the dynastic struggles after the death of Vladimir the Great in 1015 in Kievan Rus, which is uh, an empire that existed until it fell in the 13th century when it fell to the Mongol invaders, and it consisted of parts of Russia, Ukraine, and other Eastern European modern states. Go ahead and look at a map. It covered a a relatively significant uh, cross-section of territories. It uh, was a very sophisticated realm at various times. It had sewage systems. It had inheritance rights and property rights for women. It was doing a lot of interesting stuff. It was closely allied at various times with the, the Byzantine Empire, and it controlled a lot of very, very important trade routes. Anyway, I didn't know any, any of this. Uh, apparently, in 1015, Vladimir the Great, who had been... who. Expand, you know, consolidated and expanded the influence of Kievan Rus, also Christianized uh, the area. He died, and there was a struggle between some of his many, 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 many children. Eventually, this was won by Yaroslav the Wise. Uh, they all had these great epithets. So this Yaroslav the Wise, many of his brothers and sisters were murdered by another brother of his, uh, Sviatopolk the Accursed, who uh, did not end well, and <laughs> is represented as the solo antagonist of the game. Anyway, it's uh, it's at least a period of history that is not typically re- represented in a lot of Euro games. We've done Renaissance Italy a billion and one times in good games and bad. We've even done medieval Spain lots and lots of times. Era, era medieval age is nominally in Spain. And of course, there's El Grande and all the El Castillo and, and other games like that. So I, I do at least give credit uh, for the theming. It Maybe look this up and learn a little bit more uh, about the, the history. And so that is roughly the historical context of what's happening in the game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful mechanical summary of what one does in Rurik, Dawn of Kiev. No problem. Rurik is a worker placement area control game, and I'm sure everyone will tell me how wrong I am about that because any game... I'll start. You're wrong. All right, good. So there are games like Empire of the Void 2, where you're trying to ride this wave of actions, and there's benefits if everyone's doing the same action at the same time. This promotes the exact opposite. You really need to look around and see what your opponents are doing, and you need to do almost the exact opposite. Because this is where I'm going to introduce you to the main hook of the game, and this is your workers. You start out with four workers, and they have these printed numbers on them, a one, a two, a four, and a five. And players are going to take uh, turns placing these workers on six different action tracks. Depending on the number of worker you place, it's going to tell you where on the track of the action it's going to sit, right? So higher higher workers are going to, you know, be shoved up higher and push everyone else down. So that, you know, they're going to be ranked because, you know, once you pull them back, then the higher you are on the tracks, the better the action is. 
the key hook here is called, according to the designer, auction programming. This is where you're programming in your actions when there's an inverse correlation between, broadly speaking, the quality of what you're doing and how soon you're going to do it. And you can use money, which is a relatively tight resource much of the time, to juke the speed, uh, juke the quality of your actions, but not the speed. And so there's a real tension, both in terms of how you're going to play workers, and when you decide to play them. Do you lead with your strongest one and dare people to overspend to bump you? Do you lead with your weakest one and wait to commit until later, accepting the fact that you're going to get slid off? It's trade-offs like that that are really interesting. And But the problem is, when I, well, a potential problem when I was reading the rules, and I was very nervous about this because lots of games try to leverage the, these notions of turn order. Because ordering is one of the key trade-offs you're going to be doing in the context of Rurik. And I was worried, is initiative really going to matter? Am I going to care whether I tax this region in, in my first activation or am I going to tax it in my last activation? The answer is 100% yes. You need to do everything right away because otherwise you, you can have everything snaked out from under you. It is uh, I'd say it's even less of an area control game. It feels more like an area majority game because you can coexist with other people. It just makes doing anything in those provinces very, very expensive. Yeah, almost almost so if you have control over areas, it would be better. So anyway, so what Mark says is exactly right. Not only are people going to take resources from you or make it harder for you, it's just that you need to do things in certain orders. You know, you have to move out to the territories and then tax and then spend the the you know the benefits of those tax dollars that you have. You have to make sure that you program everything in the right order or else, you know, you're you're done. And this is all layered on top of all the things you care about in terms of actual board positioning. Again, the publisher calls it realm building, and it's got a little bit of something resembling economics, vaguely. It's got a little bit of something resembling infrastructure, vaguely. It's got a little bit of combat, vaguely, and it's got a lot of area control, if you want to say it that, because you care very much about controlling the regions, both intrinsically because of victory points and exogenously because of how effective and easy it make, it make, lets you do other things. It's one of those games where I've had this experience a number of times, and I generally find it's an indication of a good, clean design, where I explain how things work, but then people don't really believe me. It's like, wait, so then I just build the building? What does it cost? Do I have to pay two wood and a stone or, or three, three fish and a whatever? It's like, no, no, no. You do the build action, then you just build a building. You, you've, you've, you've paid for it by doing the action space. Yeah, a lot of the actions are like that. Like when you start a fight, you just kill a guy. It's like, do I roll dice? Do, you know, do I have to have more people? Like a lot of, it's very, very basic and, and the flow is really good there because like you said, you just, and it's like, oh, is this church, you know, more expensive than the market or no, you did the build action, put what you want, where you want it, you're done. The flow is, is very, very, very good. And it's one of those things where, We've complained about this before. Sometimes in a game, you do lots of little turns, and you don't think that the game should last very long, but suddenly the game's three hours long. This is true of a lot of worker placement games, where you have lots of little turns, but they just add up to a really overlong experience. Rurik Dawn of Kiev moves at a very good clip. It's not a super short game. We're still talking 90 minutes sometimes, especially with the full player count. But everything moves so quickly because your, your advisor placement goes very quickly, one after the other. There's no break between them. And then immediately after all the advisors come out, you're then just pulling them off and doing the actions one after the other 
uh, right away. And the way those actions get interleaved really helps things being dynamic. Walker pulls his advisor and build a, builds a building. I pull my advisor and then I tax maybe in that region, maybe somewhere else. Somebody else pulls an advisor and now they're, they're, now they're on the march. It's things like that. And it really keeps everyone involved in the game. And generally speaking, everyone's present, everyone's watching, and everyone cares about what everyone else is doing. I just want to talk about how that works is that uh, once everyone's placed their advisors down, everyone, you know, in turn order takes off their ones and then you take off your twos. That's the, how we're talking about, you know, do them in order. You can place them out in whatever order you want. They're going to bump each other around to pace, based on their number and how much how much money you put on them. But then after they're all placed, then they're all going to be taken off in order and you're going to do those actions in that order. Right. And you don't have to worry about modifying your action placement when you're doing the actual action on the board. And similarly, you're not messing around with the board when you're doing your action placement. That helps keep things focused in the two different sections of a given round. Another thing I just want to mention, because again, this sometimes uh, catches people off guard, your advisors never get slid off the board. In other games like this where you're queuing up and you can get bumped in terms of priority, sometimes you can just bumped off completely and then you just can't do anything with that person. Here, that's not the case. And not only does that give you the necessary certainty that you're not going to be completely removed, but it also ensures that there are blocking possibilities. You can try to help in a rush to lock down a certain column. There are rules to prevent being locked up before your turn comes up, but if you're not willing to prioritize those early placements, and again, a lot of the appeal to your to Rourke and me is all about those priorities. I want to do everything really powerfully and really fast, and I want to be able to select everything I want right away. And you can't do any of those things, and so it's a really, really tense juggling act. Agreed. On top of all this, everyone gets a unique leader. They all have these uh, unique powers, but they're just interesting. Sorry, they're just powerful enough to make them interesting, right? None of them are game-breaking. You know what I mean, but they're not so inane and useless that, you know, you just forget about it and never use them. One minor issue I have with respect to the visuals of the game, because you're talking about the leaders reminded me of this. In Rurik, uh, the components are, broadly speaking, excellent. You've got these custom wooden pieces for the resources. You've got these lovely oversized leader miniatures. And then all the troops are, are custom plastic pieces on this very, very lush uh, board, main game board. One problem I have, though, and this is a very common recurring thing for board games, is the primary focus to me, both in terms of how clever it is and in terms of the really, really tense trade-offs, is the action selection board, which is this small board off to the side. And I find it a little bit visually discordant when the primary focus is on the smaller thing that's harder to reach that it doesn't have the lush production values on it. Do you ever have that experience? 100%. And I talked about this to about somebody else. There's Ludology is another podcast. Just recently, they did this uh, whole thing on areas of the of the game board. It's like you know, it was one through six: your your right hand, your left hand, your tableau, you know, the table, and just how designers should emphasize on on these certain numbers and makes everything work together. And this is an exact example. Like that's arguably the main part of the game is this action selection, and it's this you know really tiny board that usually is off to the side and, you know, 50% of the people can't see it very well. Hold on. There are other board game podcasts? There is, believe it or not. Oh, no. It's only because I traveled, Mark. I had to, you know, listen to something. <laughs> I don't even listen to ours, but I listen to other ones, apparently. You're setting a very bad example for our listeners there, I'm so Walker. bad. I'm so bad. Yeah, yeah. 
I'd just like to, before we move off this issue of the action programming, because I, I think it really is the, the pride, pride of place in terms of its uniqueness and how compelling it is, it reminded me a little bit of a Steffen Feld game by the name of Die Spiekerstadt, which was uh, redesigned as Jorvik. I actually played Jorvik uh, a few months ago. And uh, I hate Die Spiekerstadt and Jorvik. I, I loathe them. They have a kind of clever auction system, but the cleverness results in a lot of it feeling very, very arbitrary. Similar, very similarly to Rurik, what you have to do is you have to make these early commitments and hope that you don't get bumped. The difference is in Jorvik and Die Spiekerstadt is, first of all, all your bids are equivalent. You don't have differing levels and you can't juke your bid in any way. And you can end up in a situation where other people's choices make your bid effectively meaningless, especially your first bids. And so turn order becomes this egregiously important thing whereby you put a worker out knowing that the odds are excellent that nothing's, nothing's going to happen to it. I got the, I got very much when planning my turns out in Rurik, I got the sensation that I think Feld was trying to get at with Jorvik and Dishpikerstadt. So anybody who's tried that game and thought, oh, this is potentially clever, but doesn't quite work, I would encourage you to go check out Rurik. The second hook I'm going to talk about in this game is the claim phase. So after you've taken back all these advisors, there's this, what they call, I guess, open quotes, the score, scoring round, close quotes, right? Where you're just, you know, assessing the board and, you know, putting yourself on, on this, on these, on these scoring levels. And it's, uh, how many places you control, how many regions you have that are adjacent to have buildings, uh, how much stuff, how many goods do you have on your boat and so on and so forth. But the cool part is that you can never go down on these tracks. It's like you, you assess it. It's much like Coliseum where, you just, you know, do your best scoring round and, you know, the rest are you just seeing, did I get score higher this round or not, right? So one of the strategies are is, you know, fill your boat up as quickly as possible and then in the later rounds just spend all that goods because you've already maxed out, you know, your good score. Same thing, you know, with the buildings because there's one thing we haven't talked about, there's these other scoring cards where you have to give up buildings or give up resources to score even more points and get, you know, small benefits. So I thought this claim phase was very interesting in the fact that, you know, once you've reached a certain level, you can never go down again. I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, it suits my playstyle enormously because one of my key problems in most games is I tend to peak too soon. Very much in the real life. I think I've been going, my life has been going downhill since I was about 14. I think that was my intellectual and physical peak, which I think says something. Well, your, your father backed that up. So I think you're, I think you're on the right track. Could we p- please leave my father out of I'm this? Sorry. Uh, we've, we've, we've talked about him enough. All right. I'm sorry. Just trying to keep it together here, Walker. We don't <laughs> need to start talking about all these things. So that part I really enjoyed. But on the other hand, it really minimizes your ability to mess with the leader. If in round two or in round three, somebody maxes out the control area, it's like, well, you could go after the control of the regions, but why bother? They've already done what they needed to do. Now, this doesn't often happen. Usually it's more of a slow buildup. And you might have little dips here and there. But on a couple of plays I've, I've had, someone has raced up one of the tracks really quickly. And then everyone just looks at it and says, well, I mean, we can't really do anything about it. It's a done deal. The other thing, though, in terms of these deed cards and the way this interacts with the claim board, because those are your two chief sources of points. Deed cards that you draft, you're probably only going to get three. And the claim board, which only has four tracks. And this leads, despite the fact that we're, we're, we're talking about a fair number of, of moving parts and details, the scoring ends up feeling super tight and super focused. 
Rorik is a game where a single point matters. This is not one of those Euro games where you look down, like even like Marco Polo, a game that we really, really like, where you say, well, I've completed seven contracts over the course of the game. Oh, you completed five. This is a game where ideally you've completed three deeds over the course of the game, each of them worth a point. And that is big. That is a big deal if you manage to do that in Rorik Dawn of Kiev. And I like that it's focused. I like that it gives you these tangible goals to work towards that are significant, that feel like heavy lifts that you have to work towards, that you plan towards that you draft with difficulty because you're trying to juke the turn order and then you spend a great deal in order to accomplish them that these track requirements are very heavy lifts but if you're able to do it then it can be a three-point jump right at the end of the track that part i really enjoy because as i've said a million times before a lot of modern euro game scorings have a score pad with 15 different elements on them and it's all a question of tallying them up and i won because i got 98 points and you got 92 rorik is a game with much more focus much more tight scoring and that i really enjoy i did enjoy that that but i do have it under my main bad point okay I think it is too tight. It's way shorter than you think. This is only a four-turn game. So you're doing this four times and you're done. You know, a great score is 20. So, you know, that's, you know, an average, you know, good score is 20. So it's really low scoring. If you've made, like, one mistake, you're pretty well out. If you've, uh, one person has, you know, got a little bit of luck, i.e. one of the good points I'm going to talk about. I'll just, you know, add it in here. There's these barbarians that seed the board. When you take it, I think they're there to like sort of, you know, slow the game down at the beginning and sort of introduce people to combat because, you know, you want to kill them first and they give you a little Benny when you kill them. If someone lucks out and gets exactly what they need, if they tweak out one or two points from that, you know, that's the game. Same thing with the, with the, the deed cards. Some of them you might, you know, just luck into and have exactly what you need to fulfill them. So I think there are some luck things there that are, that are because it's so tight and because the game is so short that it, you know, sometimes might throw the game off. I agree with you entirely. And in point of fact, one of the times I played, I felt like I got three points effectively because of a good pull from a a dead rebel. They're not barbarians. Sorry, rebels. Rebels. I'm so sorry. And it had just the good that I needed, and that effectively gave me three points because there was no way I was going to get that good any other way. And that was, you're right, it was pure luck. And sometimes the deed card comes up that you've been unintentionally building towards, and you don't have to plan for it in advance. I agree. Ultimately, though, that's the price I'm willing to pay. I'd much rather have focused scoring and occasionally it interacting in a little bit wonky way with the variance than endless sloppy scoring where you might pick up a couple cards just by chance, but then there are these seven others that you're working towards. My key objection, because I've, I've articulated all the things that I really like about Rorik Don of Kiev, and I would definitely play some more. My key objection is that it's a little stodgy and static. There's a great deal of dynamism in terms of the action selection, and it interacts really well with what's going on in the board. But again, the board, which is, again, the primary visual draw, you don't have a strong incentive or a strong flexibility to go out into new virgin territory, because... You start out in a variety of regions in the board, possibly as many as four, and in the games that I've played, I've paid attention and mostly people stick to those initial areas because the alternative is to spend a number of actions to move, and yes, movement is relatively efficient, but it's still a thing you have to do, and then hope that between your moving in and you're consolidating your position with another, either another move action or a recruit action or maybe some combat or what have you, that the other player doesn't just 
stomp you out with a number of other alternatives, either a build action you can build to convert things or through a combat action of their own. Because the way combat works in Rorik Don of Kiev, which is fine, is if you do not control the region, combat gets progressively more risky. And what that means is I've often felt looking at the board and saying, okay, well, I've, I, I, I could move out to this other province and I could go mess with Walker's plans and try to take that province from him. And it's even in my interest to do so. But I look at the action board and figuring it's going to take me three actions to get anywhere. And in the interim, if Walker does any one of these four things, I'm going to be completely kneecapped. So rather than go out and try to make this big play, I should just stay home and develop my own province that I've been in since the beginning of the game. And that really cuts down on the dynamism. It really cuts down on the player interaction. Yeah, the other thing that feeds into that is all these different resources they have. They have, you know, these pe- uh, flying squirrels and, you know... Thumbs up. Thumbs up and decaying the- cactuses. But they really just don't mean anything. You know what I mean? They, you know, you need to fill out your boat and the different things. But all it is, it seems that it's put in there to sort of force you to move out. Because like you said, I think they probably had that problem. And now, you know, in case, well, you need to have the, you know, the upstanding mermaid. Well, you have to go out and get to that territory that has the standing mermaid. And I initially hoped that that would be more of a, a more of a push that, your your point horizon would be seriously, seriously narrowed unless you made an effort to go out and take other people's territories. But I found, generally speaking, that either A, you can get it done with a little bit more effort by just sending out a token force, not really contesting anybody, but just showing up and snaking the resource. Or number two, as I've said in a couple of instances, you can just go out and aggressively murder as many rebels as you can and hope to get lucky. And very often that can happen. And so what I what I wanted to where I wanted things to come together so that you were more at each other's throats, that the board felt tight, that you really had to worry about things. And more I was worried more about things like activation order. I was worried more about competing for the good action spaces. And that was good, that was sub good substantive player interaction that I then felt was not adequately reflected in the actual board play. Enough. It, it definitely happened. There were definitely pushes. There were definitely interplayer conflicts and uh, regions would change control once or twice. But overall, I felt it was a little too static and stodgy for my taste. Let's talk about being reflected in the board. I know at the beginning of this, you had this fantastic history lesson, you know, about the theme of the game. And did any of that transfer into gameplay? No. Did you feel like any of that was happening whatsoever? Did you feel any of the theme in the game itself? No. Exactly. Right. So it doesn't really feel like you're doing much of anything in the game except for, you know, trying to outthink your opponents on the action placement board. I agree. So to sum up, I think that Rurik Dawn of Kiev is very clever, very playable, very accessible. But I wish that the board play lived up to the potential of the action selection. And I will be very happy to play again, but unlike a lot of other Euro games where everything is firing on all cylinders and you get a little bit of that economics, a little bit of that conflict, a little bit of that diplomacy getting together. And here, I I am unfairly comparing Rorik to some of my absolute favorite Euro games, games like Senji, games like Age of Empires, things like that. It doesn't quite come together in the same way, and I end up looking at this giant, beautiful board full of plastic units and all these combat opportunities and thinking, eh, I should just stay home. And that's a bit of a tragedy. I I would like to see this system implemented in a slightly more dynamic design if at all possible yeah and the same thing happened there was a game called outlive and it was the same sort of thing all your little you know action meeples had different numbers and they bullied each other and had this like cool thing that you hope lived up to something and then in the end just petered out and but usually what happens is that someone's going to take this mechanism and create a different game and hopefully it'll live up to our expectations well put
So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.